looking at you, kid. I'm Charles Foster King! Hey, Stella! Suck on this. Everybody, this is Wrong Rule, episode 486, podcast for hardcore cinephiles. We're tackling everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard. And today we're going back into the world of music videos, talking about a filmmaker who's arguably the greatest director of music videos in history. People might know him for his feature films, but long before he directed movies, David Fincher made a lot of really good music videos in the 80s and 90s. And we've got the great Leanne Kubitsch here to guide us through all of it. So Leanne, welcome back to Wrong Reel. Hey, James. How's it going? Nice to talk to you again. Good Absolutely. To see you. Well, I loved this topic. I had so much fun preparing for it because so many of these songs I hadn't heard since I was like 13. And the flashbacks were overwhelming at times where, I, for whatever reason, around like 12, 13, 14, I wasn't really watching that much MTV, but my sisters were. And so I'd kind of catch it over the shoulder. So it wasn't like I knew these songs by heart. But I definitely knew them. And when suddenly I would see a video like uh, Straight Up, I was like, oh my God, I haven't heard this song in 30 years. And it would just knock me flat. So it, it was a very emotional, personal experience watching all these videos. Oh, absolutely. The same thing. Because I was about like it, when his really his huge output of, of movie of music videos came out kind of in like 88, 89, 90 and so on. That's when I was about like 11, 12, 13 years old. And that's when I started kind of really getting into music. So this was like MTV was huge at that point. So this was like, you know, kind of like the soundtrack and like, you know, sort of a lot of influential stuff to our lives uh, growing up, you know, formatively. So also people forget that in the late 80s, like MTV was a very different animal. Maybe before we even talk about David Fincher set the stage for what was it like to be a 10-year-old girl in the late 80s when you got a lot of, you're too young to go out, but you're old enough to enjoy pop culture. What, what was it like sitting on the couch watching MTV in the late 80s, like compared to today's pop culture landscape? Well, I mean, it was like, there was constantly videos on all day long. You know, there was like, it wasn't, there weren't really TV shows that were narrative TV shows or reality shows. It was just like videos, videos, videos. And I mean, I was, you know, still kind of a kid. So my parents were a little like uh, strict about my video, you know, video watching because, you know, they didn't want me to get impressionable ideas or bad things. But, you know, I started to kind of break them down and sort of watching at that point. And it was like kind of just very interesting experience because it was like the music that was popular on the radio was also popular uh, on videos. But even MTV even rammed it down your throat even more because it just kept playing these things over and over and over again, like eight times in, like a day, the same video, that kind of thing. Yeah, I guess it was the early 90s where you really started to see the pivot, like things like Beavis and Butthead or Real World. Suddenly they were getting into the original content business. It wasn't just pop culture commentary and videos. And admittedly, I mean, obviously they, the reason they made that, when they made that pivot, it worked out so well, they never really looked back. 
But in the 80s, it was a truly interesting time. If you were a, a video director, the work was the work was available. There were a lot of videos getting, getting made. It's just incredible. What the, It was almost like this gold rush after MTV. Because I remember the first time I saw it, right around the time it was like Pat Benatar and like The Police and like early Madonna stuff and Billy Joel, some of like the first videos that I saw. But by the late 80s, MTV's really found its stride. Well, at the same time, you have these pop artists like Madonna who are redefining the culture and becoming this true, genuine pop culture icons in a lot of ways. So it's, in a lot of ways, it was a perfect storm where both the performers as well as the platform were ready to really just take over a generation. Right. And I mean, the reason I kind of wanted to do this topic is because I'm a big Madonna fan. So, you know, love Madonna. And I was like, my gosh, David Fincher did like four of her videos, and then you think, of, <laughs> and then you think of David Fincher's output as a director, and I don't think people put two and two together that he did Madonna stuff, and then he also did Seven, and all of these. So it, it it doesn't seem like they go together these two sort of parts of his career, but they absolutely do. And now he's he like of, this elder statesman of cinema. He's got the gray hair and the beard, and he dresses like a almost like a a professor at Cambridge. But it's hard to reconcile that with this guy who, in his early 20s, is taking over the music video industry. I mean, in the 20s, his output was prodigious. Even if he never made a feature film, he would still be famous as the greatest director of music videos of the 80s and early 90s, constantly winning awards and constantly creating videos for some of these artists' most popular songs and really experimenting in a lot of ways. And of course, as a kid, I didn't put two and two together just how many cinematic references there are buried in his films, whether it's references to old movie stars or black and white cinematography or sci-fi dystopian movies like Blade Runner. But if you're a movie lover, going back and watching his videos now, it's like, oh my God, oh my, I, I couldn't believe how many cool little cinematic Easter eggs that were sprinkled throughout so many of these movies, I mean, so many of these videos. Right, and that's the thing about David Venture too, that's, uh, you said, elder statesman, and that's an interesting point, because another thing about him is, I, I kept thinking, like, what is David Fincher's, what is his work really about? Is he an auteur because he makes kind of big films that are very, you know, you know, Hollywood films that are well-received by a larger audience? So is he an auteur? Well, yeah, kind of, even though he makes these popular films, most of them adaptations of, from books, but regardless, he does a great job at it. And I was thinking, what is he all about, you know? And I'm like, I kind of came to the idea that his aesthetic is like a world without dust. It's all about beautiful glossing on sort of ordinary people. And that's kind of what all of his work has been, even when you look at these videos. Like, that's where it came from, making these music videos and then putting this gloss on his feature films. You can definitely see the DNA for so many of his feature movies. Like little things, I mean, just there's so many little narratives and short stories embedded in these where you'll have the performer dancing, doing their thing, but it's cutting back and forth to a little short film. It's like, ooh, this is like a little crime story. He's warming up for Seven. He's warming up for Zodiac. He's warming up for all these things. And then you see other kind of more futuristic, bizarre sci-fi ones. Like, ooh, he's warming up for Alien 3. It's basically predicting so many things to come later on. Yeah, and that's why like, I think it's so interesting that you know he's now doing television. Mind, uh, I mean, Mindhunter and right. what was the other big one that he was involved in uh, for a little while? Uh, the House of Cards. That's right, yeah. So he basically yes. helped launch two of the biggest Netflix shows of the since Netflix got into the original content business. And I really enjoyed season one of Mindhunter. Mindhunter season two, about half of it, but the episodes he directs, like, ooh, he's absolutely still got it, but he hasn't directed a movie since Gone Girl, which is 2014. 
Right, which is kind of surprising. I saw that he's on the list to do World War Z 2, which is interesting because the first one was directed by just somebody, uh, you know, not nobody of really note. And so that's kind of surprising. Yet again, another book adaptation. Isn't so, he doing the film about Herman J. Mankiewicz, the co-author of the screenplay for Citizen Kane? Yes. I just heard that there were some problems with that because apparently his dad was somehow involved with it and his father died. And so something's kind of in stasis with that right now where they're just kind of figuring out how to continue, I think. Gotcha. Yeah, I've read that IDB, somewhere. It's saying, it's saying um, pre-production, and I'm, I'm I'm obsessed with Orson Welles, and I'm very curious to see, but in the early 70s, there was this giant push against Orson Welles led by Pauline Kael, where essentially Pauline Kael hated Orson Welles, and she was doing everything she could to try and destroy him, and essentially claiming that he was taking too much credit for the success of Citizen Kane, that more of that success was owed to Herman J. Mankiewicz. And Herman J. Mankiewicz, brilliant screenwriter, and his original screenplay, I think it was just called American, basically the story's there, but the structure that we love about Citizen Kane and a lot of like the charm and flavor, it's not there, but obviously powerhouse writer, but I wonder whether or not they'll... I, I would just wonder what the what the goals are of this particular film. But anytime someone wants to explore that period of filmmaking, I'm all for it. And Gary Oldman's on the hook and Amanda Seyfried. I'd be curious to see, but I just want to see David Fincher taking a crack in another feature. As much as I like his work in TV, as you mentioned, he is an auteur. Oh, and I forgot, he also did the animated anthology for Netflix, Love, Death, and Robots, where he's one of the producers and that was insanely cool. Some of the best short films in the world of animation in the last couple of years were part of that. So I hope he'll do more of that as well. But that, that obviously was just him working as a producer. He, but he's just so talented. I think it's a shame anytime he's not directing films because there are not a lot of directors who are auteurs working at a big scale like Christopher Nolan, Quentin Tarantino, Martin Scorsese. And these guys are making big budget $100 million plus movies. But most people making $100 million plus they are like as interchangeable as like somebody working on an assembly line like in a toy factory. So I feel like the world of cinema needs David Fincher, and I want to see another movie on the level of Social Network. Or who knows? Mm -hmm. He should just do a sequel to Social Network because so much has gone down since then. There's more story to tell about Zuckerberg. Absolutely. I mean, it's kind of surprising that that film came out when it did, and it seems like it was you know a million years ago. Nine but years ago. Even yeah, it, it kind of was in a way from where tech, we've been. That's a century. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, somebody needs to write a social network too to get him the, you know, the dark days. Unless you get Aaron Sorkin back in there uh, on the typewriter. You got to have Trent Reznor during the music. And of course you have to have Jesse Eisenberg. Yeah. Cause I mean, that was, that's definitely, I think my second favorite film by him. Cause just, yeah, the soundtrack itself is just fabulous. So beautiful. Well, let's um, talk about the early, early days when he's uh -huh. a fresh faced youth working at Industrial Light and Magic on Return of the Jedi. What can you tell us about the early days of David Fincher? Well, he sounds like he has, like, not, not a charmed life, but, you know, privilege, charm, whatever you want to call it. It sounds like he lived next to, um, he, he was, friends, uh, uh, geez, um, help me out. Jeez, uh, I'm blanking out right now. Um, uh, neighbors of George Lucas as a kid? Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Yes, George Lucas. Yes. So he's neighbors with him. So he got like, he was like, hey, buddy, work for Industrial Light and Magic. It sounded like it was some kind of like thing like that. He knew somebody got into Industrial Light and Magic. He didn't really want to go to film school. And he just started to kind of work on productions. Uh, and he really just wanted to be a gaffer. It sounded like he wanted to do that. And you can tell even to this day where he loves the minutia of uh, production because he throws it in everything. 
always little bits like always there's always some sort of um close up of uh you know the internal workings of uh, of a machine oh especially and, but also in these music videos you get a lot mm -hmm. of behind the scenes looks at making a shoot or making a film that sort of thing he just you can tell he's a total he's a, yeah he's a tech junkie and he, he loves all this stuff Right. So, I mean, he's absolutely, I mean, and he learned like what well, you and I did, well, the old fashioned way of doing film, like, you know, cutting, splicing film, having to do it really difficult, like the old ways. So, I mean, it's obvious that he had a love for it because he's good at technical things. So he kept putting that in as like a reference point in all of his work. Um, so that's like, so, but it's amazing. I mean, he was what, in a, 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 he, he worked at on Jedi, which is wild, which came out when he was 21. Oh my God. Like that's, yeah, that's amazing. Was, no uh, college. Yeah, assistant cameraman and a matte photographer on Jedi and Temple Brilliant. of Doom. Wow. Wow. I mean, and uh, yeah, I was still in, like, I was like in grad school at that point, still hanging around, still learning how to do stuff. And he's working on Jedi at the same age. Yeah, oh, when I was amazing. 21. I was high all day, every day watching movies <laughs> and loving it, but I definitely wasn't carving a path toward a great career. <laughs> like he was. Yeah. I mean, and it, sure, it's the people he knows, but it's also not just like the people he knows, which I'm sure a lot of people would say, well, isn't it nice you knew who you knew, but it's the work he did. It's just not, he wouldn't have got where he had if he hadn't had the talent. He put in the hours. And the drive, yeah. I mean, he was really, just really, really smart at what he was yeah. doing. So. Nepotism obviously opens a lot of doors. However, if you're a total dumbass and you don't show up to work on time, guess what? The nepotism's kind of, it draws to a close very quickly. And I, I, one of the best lines I ever heard was like, decisions are made by those people who choose to show up. And <laughs> this is one of those guys where in his 20s, he wasn't content to be idle. He cranked out like uh, probably more music videos than anyone since like, I mean, Ridley Scott got kind of sharpened his teeth by doing just thousands of commercials. But I feel like commercials, they can get you experience with the, with the equipment. But doing a music video... It's visual storytelling, and you have so many more opportunities to practice and ex express and develop your individual style. So, yeah, between commercials or music videos, I definitely think music videos seems to generate more interesting filmmakers. Right. So, I mean, if we want to start out right where he started, which was 1984, Rick Springfield, it's a song called Bop Till You Drop. Uh can't say it's my favorite song. Um, Rick Springfield does have some nicer songs. Uh, this is not my favorite tune by him, but um, I think this tune is unlistenable. Yeah, it's kind of yeah. Trying to be diplomatic for the Rick Springfield fans, but yeah, it's not really my. It's, here's the thing about the video: it's very much a dystopian sort of. There's slave people in an alien society with monsters, and then somehow he in live is them to break through their shackles and they win or something but it looks <laughs> it looks so bad and it i mean it's it but it's at that time i mean there's so many music videos and it looks just like, like he that made it with like leftover pieces of like special effects and prosthetics from other films are you watching you're like that kind of looks like a piece of Jetta, or that looks like a piece of Dune, or that looks like a, you, you almost see like kind of like the echoes of other movies i, I guarantee you he was scraping together props from wherever he could but this is, of course, I mean, Ridley Scott did that great Apple short film, uh, The Year of the Macintosh in 1984, <laughs> talking about, like, you know, the novel 1984. And I do love it when people tackle dystopian stuff, but uh, I found an interesting quote by Fincher where he said, 
That one got me out of ILM. I mean, I would make that video very differently today. And for a 22-year-old and the first $150,000 I ever had to spend, yeah, we did the best we could with what we had. Rick was incredibly sweet to me to give me that opportunity, but I honestly don't know what any of that had to do with that song. At least it was different. I mean, the song... Bop till you drop it has that and sci-fi just don't go together <laughs> at, at all but you know it, it, at least it got the the it got the career underway and i know he ended up putting it together his own production company once again something i would not have been capable of at 22 but he co-founded propaganda films and just set off on this whirlwind career just cranking out videos yeah i mean because there's i mean we're gonna pass over so many that people are probably going to be annoyed with i mean he did a Loverboy video, a Patty Smythe video, Eddie Money, uh, Mark Knopfler uh, from Dire Straits, Foreigner, Loverboy, uh, everybody. Like, there's so many before we even get to start to really talk about the, the big ones. But practice uh, is so important. Like, if you're going to skip film school, and I, I always recommend people do skip film school, and just the tools are out there now. Anything you want to know, you can learn online. But getting the practice and getting the hours in, so many filmmakers, are, they're so idle all the time trying to shop around a screenplay or whatever the case might be. And the key is, it's like, if you want to write a great novel, guess what? You're going to have to write a lot of shitty stories first before you write a great novel. And if you want to do a great painting, guess what? you got to do a couple thousand shitty paintings first before you get your good one. But before he got to Alien 3 and 7 and Fight Club, he got so much practice on these videos. And it's, I feel like it's like the best film school in the world. Yeah, and he's lucky that that MTV existed where it was seen by people because, sure, MTV still exists. They still have the music video awards. But, you know, frankly, I mean, I, I try to watch them every year just to see what, you know, the new things is that I, I don't know about. And I'm like, where are they showing these videos when there's YouTube. not even videos? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's so you have to watch YouTube. But yeah, MTV's still giving out the videos and they don't yeah. show them. Like Harmony like, Kareen will occasionally do a cool one. I saw one he did with Rihanna and Drake. And they were like hanging out in a strip club and smoking blunts. And I was like, all right, this is pretty cool. I'll watch this. And like Paul Thomas Anderson obviously is very active. And I think our Paul Thomas Anderson is what kind of gave you the idea a little bit to to start doing this. But obviously the platform for videos, I don't know if a 10-year-old girl these days is sitting around watching shitloads of cool music videos the way Leanne Kubich was back in the late 80s. Oh, definitely not. Because, I mean, they're going to be on YouTube. They're watching other things. They're definitely like into... I mean, absolutely, kids, everybody's always going to be into music no matter what generation. Uh, they're just getting it in a different way than we were. And also our vocabulary that we were getting was from totally different from what our parents were getting. You know, we have you know, baby boomer parents or my dad's even older than that. And they were not watching music videos when they were into this music they were into. So I guess yeah, they, the were, they, were, they were parking on a hill overlooking yeah. the city and necking and giving each other promise rings and that, all that good stuff. Right. Yeah. So I think every generation has its different vocabulary as how it gets its music. But I bet getting... your parents had some sick fucking jukebox culture back in the, you know, you go to the local diner, get a cheeseburger and you have this epic jukebox collection. I imagine or you probably have it right there on the counter where you're eating. So there, there's definitely some things about the 50s and 60s that were pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, hey, my mom has all the original Beatles records. So and the singles. So, you know, she was right in there at that time when music was still changing even then. Um but yeah, I mean, it, to see it, for me, it was a very interesting situation because I was like, you know, when you're going from a little girl to being a teenager, it's a whole big transition. And just the world that we were living in at that time was very volatile and very different. And it's like to see 
the social issues sort of reflected in a way in especially some of these videos is very interesting. Well, um, I remember that so many videos could spark like really interesting controversies. What was the one, the, the music video, was it Soul Asylum? Did that runaway video? Runaway actually, Train. Yeah, Runaway Train. And it actually was helping homeless kids and runaway kids being found and like reunited with their families and they kept changing the video to show different kids in it so music videos were a huge part of the culture but I remember when my little sister told me about that i was like wow that's actually really fucking cool that like this pop song is helping to heal and mend some of these people's lives so yeah music videos i think people think of them as being so disposable but they can be more when an artist wants them to be and obviously with a lot of these videos you have a songwriter or a performer who's got higher ambitions than just mere fluff. Oh yeah. I mean, and it shows with this, like, I wonder, you know, you always wonder in a hundred years, what's going to be important. And I'm like, will David Fincher's work be thought of, you know, like, will it be the Madonna videos he's remembered for or like fight club? You know, it's kind of a toss up, honestly, which cause he's attached himself to the most prominent female artist of our time. So, and did basically it, you know, uh, engineered a lot of her images for her. So, which she helped with, obviously, too, but, um, yeah, you I mean, know. With Madonna, you cannot say enough about her longevity, her powers of, like, to reinvent herself. But when it comes to being a singer, dancer, celebrity, actress, that late 80s, early 90s period, I don't know if there's a performer alive today that has commands so much attention like she did at that time where just... She was very broad-minded, aggressively pursuing new frontiers creatively, and at the same time, just this insane smokehouse sexual icon. <laughs> I, just, I can't think of a modern-day equivalent where they are kind of a, a renaissance person in that sense, where they're trying so many things at once. But this, he comes along right at a time where she's ready to make, take some big, bold risks with her videos. Yeah, because, I mean, you think about maybe Lady Gaga nowadays, but not even close. I mean, sure, she was in... Uh, you know, Stars Born, which is fabulous. Uh, she has, you know, her. She has a humanitarian foundation, a, a makeup line, the this and that, a, a Las Vegas residency. But it's nothing like what Madonna was doing in like this time period where she had, she was trying to do movies. She already had a few under her belt. She was making all these like really like controversial albums. She did the Sex Book, which was wildly uh, controversial. The Pepsi commercial. Uh, just that, which was associated with like a prayer video. Um, I mean, and she was breaking, just even telling people to vote. She was making like the first, I think, voter advoc advocacy videos I'd ever seen. What's like, funny is like at that age, I was mostly playing Nintendo, reading comics, playing d and I was into a lot of really nerdy stuff, <laughs> but I was a teenage boy and I was <laughs> not immune to just the idea of this girl breaking all these frontiers, like kind of shattering things that are considered to be taboo. And looking back now as a kind of a dirty old man, I'm just in awe of how willing she was and how uh, uh, eager she was to put all of her out there, or even like with the video for Vogue, maybe it's time to start digging into some of these mm. videos, how MTV said, oh no, with this shot of you wearing a sheer shirt, we, we can see your nipples. That can't be in the video. She's like, it's going in, you can take the video or not. And MTV caved, and sure enough, you have Vogue, and the the shot's beautiful. It's it's it's, it's insanely hot. So uh, she was. Um, I wish we had more stars who were willing to buck kind of uh, squeaky clean, wet blanket attitudes. Oh yeah, and I mean she didn't care, and I think it was it's it's really important because it's it's interesting that Madonna and David Fincher at the time that they collaborated the most, 
um, we're about the same age. They're about, you know, two, she's, I think, like two or three years older than him. So they're both in their like late 20s, early 30s, still like, you know, so they just have a lot of like, you know, just like just fire in them. And they were like, yeah, let's do whatever, you know. Um, and she kind of guided her, it sounds like. So like, you know, the first, you know, well, before Vogue even, we have Express Yourself, which is also like almost equivalently amazing it's of a killer production. Video. Yeah. Yeah. Fritz Lang looking situation, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, it has that big, just, it's, it's a huge video. That's big the first crack. video I watched when I started getting prepared for this episode. It's like, you know, I haven't heard this song in forever since like the days of like the Blonde Ambition Tour. Let's check out Express Yourself. And I was like, oh my God, that's like when the tidal wave of memory started kind of washing over me. But once again, it looks like the set of Alien 3 a couple of years before he shot Alien 3. Right, right. And it looks like that. And then you also like if you compare the shots to like Metropolis and that it looks very much similar. And they say it was incredibly expensive to make. I guess they took a long time on set or something like that. Because they said it was like 10 million at the time to make, which is that's awe inspiring. Like, yeah, it's like feature films today be made for a couple million. And a lot yeah. of these shoots were like two days. But obviously with Madonna, they were they were going all in for much longer. But so many of those classic Madonna moves I hadn't thought about in so long where like the whole thing where she would like, like she would always wear like those suits with a bra underneath and like pull out one boob, pull out both or doing like the crotch grab, like all these, like people talk about Michael Jackson's patented moves, like his crotch grabs and moonwalks. But Madonna was doing her own style and her own thing as well. It just, I, I love getting to see her wearing those suits, throwing down those dance moves again. It just was, it was so much goddamn fun. Yeah, it was like that Gautier styling with, yeah, the cone bra was like his thing. So not only was she showing a fashion that was extreme, but she was showing a fashion that was extreme made by a gay man. And so she was always championing, uh, like, people. She was an ally. She was, like, the first big ally, you know. And, of course, there's a million things you can say about Madonna saying, oh, she didn't do enough of this, didn't do enough of that. But... Who else at this time was going to be able to break down these boundaries? Yeah, remember in the Truth or Dare documentary, that was one of the first times I was even aware of seeing like gay people on screen because there's a lot of behind-the-scenes footage where she's hanging out with all of her dancers, and they're playing Truth or Dare. I was like, oh, like they're just kissing anyone. <laughs> it never even occurred to me that that was like what it was like behind the scenes. But I remember Truth or Dare was a big eye-opener at that time. But also just taking just like – sexuality and fitness to new heights. I mean, you see in this video, express yourself with just like her back muscles and so on and so forth. It's such a powerful, dynamic type of sexuality. It's not the curvaceous kind of hourglass figure form of sexuality. This is a muscular, lean, like rigorous form of sexuality, which for me was uh, brand new. Yeah, and it's empowerment. I mean, the whole song's about like, if he's not treating you right, 
you have to leave him because like flowers don't mean anything you know he has to tell you how he feels and express like the right things that you want not you know not just he wants but that you want so it's like who else was saying that you know we're still getting that message now with pop stars uh with young who are you know going for the young female audience and madonna was doing it well before anybody else was giving her permission well, to it's do like so. there's nothing new under the sun and every generation thinks they've discovered ideas for like the very first time i saw an article recently on mary sue talking about like how amazing it was that alien had all these different characters that were prominent characters that weren't white men and i was like yeah guess what like y'all's generation didn't think this up like back in the late 70s people realized hey you know what cast good actors irrespective of race or gender and you get a great ensemble cast but every generation whether it's like when you see kids arriving at a school when they first go up to college, like they think they've discovered how cool it is or an idea in pop culture. Every generation I feel like falls under that curse where you think you're so revolutionary. Like then you start to realize, Oh, like people have come before and done this and oftentimes done it much better. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because that, that actually kind of segs into, into like Vogue where obviously it's a brilliant video and, but where she got the ideas from it, she, culturally appropriated, um, like from the dance hall, Harlem, you know, culture, which is shown in Paris is burning. And she actually took some of the, um, house members, like, like there's two house of extravaganza members in the video. I mean, is culturally appropriate the right way to put it? Cause like, I feel like when it comes to creativity, creativity should be inspired by other creative people. And I guess as long as you're giving people opportunities to choreograph and dance and so on and so forth, it's a giant melting pot, especially, I mean, I've seen Paris as burning mm. and you see all this classic patented moves, but it's one of those things where obviously Madonna is a huge star. So if she gets inspired by something, people are going to say, oh, well, you're stealing it. But I feel like an artist should be open, especially when it comes to dance moves, to being inspired by things that are going on in these kind of clandestine gay nightclubs going uh, around New York at that time. Yeah, I mean, that's the interesting thing. Like the the, the argument like um, kind of goes back and forth. When you look back then, everybody was just like, hey, it's it's great. You know, she's she's bringing up this this specific dance, but she was kind of like, you know, not neutering it. She was changing it for her own purposes because obviously voguing is dance battling, yeah, right? She, she took it. She took it mainstream. Exactly. She, she changed it and made it, you know, about everybody. Hey, if you use your imagination, you know, use your imagination. That's what it's for. And when you're voguing, like, you know, in the dance hall situation, people were using their imagination to become real for the realness factor so that they could, because they could not live the way they wanted to in real life. Yeah, right? there's a great line in the song about whether it's like black or white, a guy or girl, like strike a pose. I, I, I don't, I can't remember the exact mm -hmm. line, but people, that's one of the best parts. It's, it doesn't matter who you are, as long as you express yourself creatively doing these moves, et cetera. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it, it's like, I like the fact that she did that because she brought it to a bigger audience just saying, hey, no matter who you are, you know, if you use your imagination and you try to be who you want to be, you can be who you want to be. Um, but of course, you know, some people will say, well, there's not enough. She didn't do enough for the people who she took the, the dance from that dance form from, but I'm like, I don't know what it means. Jenny Livingston, the director of Fires is Burning say she didn't do the same thing. And she was the one who profited off of that culture technically first. Um, but it's kind of like a multi-layered argument because there's that television show pose um, which has been on FX for two seasons. And the second season, they actually talk about this issue a lot. Um, it's kind of the arc that they're in the 90s, 
Vogue's Madonna, uh, Madonna's Vogue is, is huge. So they are like, oh, wow, it's really going to help us in the black gay community in New York. And then they realize, like, nah, not really, not as much as you'd hope. Um, and being as I grew up in the NYC metro area and I saw all this stuff like on the news every night, um, you know, like that, you know, gay people were treated like garbage because well, they might have AIDS or they're just gay. And, and it was a really tough time. So, um, you know, it's a multi-layered argument. So it's interesting. Like I do suggest some people watch Pose. Um, I, I enjoy it. It is thematically kind of all over the place and some, some of it's good, some of it's bad, but they do go into that sort of argument, like, did she appropriate too much? Did she not give back enough? Or was it a good thing? Like, it's a good thing and a bad thing. But I mean, I would say if in 1990, if you're looking for people who are giving opportunities, like mm -hmm. you watch the video for Vogue, you see plenty of shots of, you know, striking, very charismatic, very stylish gay dudes posing and doing their thing and voguing, etc. Like, who else was doing that kind of thing at the time? So I would... You can always say, well, couldn't you have done more? But yeah, mm. you could say that about anything. Like, like, I took up my recycling this morning. Well, did you lecture your neighbor about taking out their recycling too? It's like, well, no, but I did something good. I took out my recycling. Like, and so I feel like you oftentimes lose people when no matter what you do, it's not enough, or they find some way to twist it into being a, 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 a net negative. And I would, I would say when it comes to Madonna in the late 80s, early 90s, she was probably one of the only people really putting – gay male and female people in a prominent position to look totally badass showing off what they can do on the biggest platform imaginable mtv so i would be inclined to look at madonna in a positive light when it comes to giving people opportunities that perhaps weren't getting those opportunities i mean hollywood's been using gay people in showbiz for forever i mean oftentimes they were in the closet like george kikor major director one of the biggest directors from the 30s to the 60s he was out of the closet within hollywood but outside of that no one really knew but when it came to doing musicals like Vincent Minnelli, gay director, but married to Judy Garland. Like, so it's not like gay people weren't being put into use, but obviously in Vogue, they're making no effort to disguise the fact. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, even still though, like, I mean, and I, I'm still like on the positive end of Madonna and a lot of these criticisms have come up actually more recently. I'm talking about in the past 10, five years, that sort yeah, of thing. Where people get so, judged by 2019 yeah. standards as opposed to this. Like, mm -hmm. If you want to do that, like Obama in 2008, didn't have gay marriage as part of his platform. So it's like if people want a Monday morning quarterback all of history, you it's a very slippery slope. And I feel like you have to judge people by the eras in which they lived. And as far as like 89, 90s concerned, I feel like Madonna was on like the frontier of this. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, now we're looking at her now as a, a 60 year old, you know, you know, person, you know, performer who's been around for like, you know, since the 80s who is worth like a crazy amount of money. But at the time she wasn't, and she was really going out for people. She, I mean, especially like you look at what happened to her after, you know, when she went on tour and she was just constantly like attacked and attacked and attacked just for being a woman, just for saying these things and bringing these people on with her and stuff. So I think it, I mean, I think it's a fabulous video. I could listen to this song like 8,000 times a day. Like seriously, like I love this song. Um, it's not my, from my favorite album by her, but it's, fantastic well, also, it, if you're an old movie lover and i am this is something i couldn't appreciate <laughs> in 1990 because i didn't know who any of these people were but you got this great bit where you know the whole line like greta garba Anne monroe dietrich and dimaggio but if you have all these names like marlon brando jimmy dean grace kelly gene harlow gene kelly fred astaire ginger rogers like i had no idea but this is, this is a love song to the great heyday of Hollywood. She's talking about they had style, they had grace. Rita Hayworth gave good face. I mean, it's just, it's just an incredible, it's almost like she's rapping about the gold age of Hollywood. And I just think it's so fucking cool because 
the black and the black and white photography is so beautiful, and you have all these great homages to like Shanghai Express and Postman Order Strings twice. If you love these old movies in the 30s and 40s, like it's got its fingerprints all over, but obviously they're taking it someplace very new. So you can say, well, she's culturally appropriating from classic Hollywood. It's like, no, they're being inspired by classic Hollywood. It's a pastiche or it's a collage of all these different influences. So once again, I, I think Vogue is a remarkable achievement uh, across the board. Oh yeah, and, and especially since even her choreography is she's making it into her own Vogue choreographed dance. And then there's those snippets with the guys from House of Extravaganza where they're really voguing. Like you can tell easily the difference. Real voguing looks wildly different. A lot of it's close to the ground, a lot of wild arm movements and things like that. And she's not doing that. So she let the guys do their own thing. She showcased them several times in that video. Said, no, do your own thing. And then I'm going to do my own special you know, glossed up version of it. So she wasn't even, she was letting them do their real thing. I, I think it's, it's fabulous. I mean, yeah, this, this is one of the best ones. Um, I'm not an expert on the history of videos, but if someone wants to do top 10 videos, top 50, top 100, whatever, this video is always going to come I mean, Thriller is always going to come up, but Vogue is definitely one of those seminal videos that's always going to come up in that conversation until the end of time. And yeah, and that's why it's kind of funny when you look at, um, the film that uh, the video that came out before this, the Oh Father video, um, uh, that Fincher had apparently convinced her to put out. He's like, no, 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 put this out as a single. It'll be great. And it's a ballad about you know a, a, a well not a, a child who like loses their mom. It's pretty sad stuff. It's a wonder. It's a lovely video. But she was pissed off at him after making that. She was like, you screwed me over for making me put this out. It flopped. But I don't think people were ready at that time to deal with like Madonna, serious person who has actually like serious personal issues. Well, so much about her is like this wonderful artifice Mm -hmm. and you don't necessarily like you want to buy into the illusion. You want to buy into the icon, the larger than life figure, and you don't necessarily want to get too familiar with the bio, or at least at that time, I wasn't. I wasn't interested. I wanted the superhero, not like the the autobiographical story of of the little girl. So I, I can get that point of view. But I think Madonna, if it had been a hit, she would have probably loved David Fincher for it. So she just she loved the camera. She loved celebrity. And there's that great scene in Truth or Dare when uh, uh, Warren Beatty is kind of joking to the camera about how there's no point in Madonna saying or doing anything unless there's a camera around. She lived for the camera. She was the true embodiment of doing like, – she had no private life. So, like, she, Madonna doesn't exist unless there's a camera around. Oh, yeah. And that's so brilliant too because you think about what he says there and the film and it's like, oh, my God, she was 30 years ahead of time because – everybody's living their life in public now. Absolutely. So she was doing it well before that, which is just like, whoa. Um, but yeah, and even in the Oh Father video, you have your Orson Welles sort of uh, like the, the homage to where like in a Citizen Kane where he's playing in the snow and the, the, the little girl's playing in the snow, that kind of thing. Uh, there's like, you know, stuff falling on. It's very, very Citizen Kane looking video. It's creepy. It's really yeah, creepy. Adventure, I don't, I've never heard him speak at length about any filmmakers except for Hitchcock because there was a great Alfred Hitchcock documentary by um, uh, Kent Jones and one of the filmmakers who pops up a lot and it's David Fincher. But I would love to hear Fincher's perspective on Wells. Or, of course, if he ends up making that Mank movie, then we'll get all the perspective we, we, we could ever hope for. But another great one he did with Madonna's Bad Girl, when you got Christopher Walken in there, it, it's this great 
like little narrative shoved in there where you have Madonna's like this badass executive, but she loves getting it on with a variety of different partners. And it's like a great little supernatural film noir in a lot of ways. And it has homages to like looking for Mr. Goodbar and Wings of Desire. I don't think it's quite as successful as Vogue, but for people who want to see hints of the narrative filmmaking to come for Fincher later on, you see a lot of it at play in Bad Girl. Oh yeah, this one is one of my favorites. I mean, Erotica is definitely like my favorite Madonna album, which is this track is off of. And I love this video just because it's like, I think she, Fincher did a really good job of um, directing her as an actor in this video. She's a good actor in this video. Like she's this person, this this Louise uh, or Orlean, I believe, or, or Oriole is her name on the office door. And she's like an executive and she's, She's just very nuanced in it. You know, You fe- she feels like a real person. Yeah, this Especially- is like the body of evidence mm-hmm. era. This is when she, she was making a big play at being a movie star at this point, doing things like Dick Tracy. I guess Dick Tracy maybe was like one or two years earlier. But I remember all of a sudden in the early 90s, she, there was a massive push. I mean, she'd done like Desperately Seeking Susan and things like that. But suddenly around this period, she's like, whether you like it or not, I'm coming to the movie business. <laughs> I'm diving in with both feet. Yeah, and I mean, I think like it's it, her, her and Walken are playing off each other very, very well. Um, I love he's you know he's like the jealous angel basically. I mean, he's getting angry at her. He's jealous. He 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 turns his head away in these ways in this video. That's like he's like, oh, you're breaking my heart. You know, it's it, you feel that, and she plays off of him very, very well. She feels real. I mean, just there's this one little nuance in the in the in this video that I love. It's so real. She comes in the house. She's like, oh, I haven't been home, and she got to feed her cat, and she just dumps all this cat food, this gross cat food in her Well, you thing. can tell she's been out for like a day getting yeah. shit-faced, chain-smoking cigarettes, and fucking some dude, and so, yeah, the cat's been home alone all this time. Yeah, so she puts this, like, nasty cat food in the thing, and then she, right as she's, like, putting, like, the can on the counter, she licks her finger with cat food on it and then proceeds to drink this fancy-ass, like, glass of wine. And you're like, that's so nasty. Yeah. She's eating cat food, and she's like, I'm cool with it. Cause that's just like how I am. And you're like, Oh gross. That's like my favorite part of that video. Just Madonna eating the cat food because it's such a little touch. But uh, just as you're hitting rock bottom, like you've got wealth, you've got power, but you're, you're licking cat food off your finger. But my, my favorite little bit is a tiny little bit, but just in terms of sheer filmmaking craft, there's a great cut where going from a ban- uh, banaca spray into the mouth followed by a cat hissing. It's just yes. a weird little interesting contrast, but like, Whoa, that was insanely cool. And so you're like, Oh yeah, I forgot. I'm watching a David Fincher movie. Oh, and then there's also another really cool, um, like, sort of... So, first of all, there's a really interesting cameo in this, which nobody would have noticed at the time, but we notice now. Um, the actor Mark Margolis, who played Tio Salamanca on Breaking Bad, is the bartender. So, he's a bartender, he, like, lights her cigarette, and then he's, like, wiping off the counter, and it's it, 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 it transitions into another um, scene. So like the counter turns into a street or something like that. It's just a really cool little like transition. Um, but yeah, Tio Salamanca is in the video. Awesome. Another thing we should mention is that this video came a little later. It's 93. Mm-hmm. So at this point, Fincher has already dabbled in the movie biz with Alien 3 the previous year and had a pretty, an unfavorable experience. He, he did not like how he 
lacked control, got kind of got pushed around a bit. The movie would have been a different experience if he had had. And it's amazing that you would hire this visionary director who has all this incredible experience and then not let him do his thing. But obviously, it really took until seven before people realized, oh shit, he's really good at this. Maybe we ought to get out of his out of his way and he can deliver something really special. So he had a bit of a retreat after Alien Three back into the world of music videos to kind of reprove himself. Oh, yeah. And I mean, that's the thing. I got to be honest. I've never seen Alien 3. I somehow, oh, you know, just. You. I know, Martin I know. Kessler will never forgive you. I, I've heard, yeah, I know. Sorry, Martin. Um, yeah, I mean, I've heard, you know, some. It's not. It's kind of rough, and I just I didn't get around to it to uh, on the rewatch for this. What's cool about it is that it doesn't try. Like, there's so many franchises like Halloween or Terminator where they just keep telling the same story over and over again. And it gets really frustrating. What's fun about Alien 3, it doesn't try to be the first Alien, it doesn't try to be the second one. It's like, let's do something totally different set in this world. And it succeeds to a greater or lesser degree. It is not as good as Alien or Aliens, but it's its own beast. And I think that's why people kind of prote- are protective of it and defensive of it because they recognize that David Venture was trying to avoid the trap of sequelitis and do something original. It just, people didn't necessarily want what he was trying to do. Yeah, so I mean, that one, I mean, I can understand. I mean, hey, we've all had, I mean, I, I can understand being like, oh my God, I messed up this project. I got to go do something else. Like, we've all been there, you know, like just changing gears. So, I mean, he'd already been successful. So why not go back? He and has make- a great expression from filmmaking where he says, take all of the responsibility because you're going to get all of the blame. <laughs> Perhaps he might've coined that phrase after Alien 3 because whether a video or a film is successful or a failure, the director is going to be able to take credit whether they like it or not. And so, yeah, why not try to exercise as much control as you can? Because if the film blows up in your face, it's not like the people who were giving you bad advice are going to own up and, and take responsibility. Yeah, and that's an interesting thing, too, because reading about how, you know, it sounds like his style, people keep saying he's a taskmaster and he's super perfectionist, like just billions of, you know, retakes and shots and over and over and over again. But he was like, at a certain point, he said, if you don't become the director and like be like, I'm the guy in charge and we're doing it this way or my way, the highway kind of thing. He's like, it becomes it goes out of control. Everybody thinks they can tell you their idea. And then all the executives and he's like, it becomes a disaster. And I think he must have learned that right off the bat with Alien 3. Like, if you don't have your own control. Um, you don't have you get your films own made by committee. I heard this great expression recently by Ricky Gervais where he said a camel is a horse designed by committee. I was like. Thank, thank you. You just described like nine out of ten movies. <laughs> they're, they're camels when they wanted to be a horse.
Wait, my, my biggest memory of straight up is being at King's... Are you familiar with King's Dominion? There's like an amusement park in Virginia. Uh, yeah, I've totally been there a few times. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. Right, I was at King's Dominion summer, like 89 or 90, and they had this thing set up where you could like lip sync and they do music videos and they had like crazy colors that would swirl around behind you. But I remember <laughs> watching these two girls doing straight up and one had all these moves down and was totally into it. And her friend was really shy and kept covering her face and like kind of crouching down. And it's such a weird clear memory in my mind watching these two girls one who was all in and one who was just not not prepared so it's like my most lingering memory of that particular tune that's great okay. well let's dig into a little george michael because yeah freedom 90 not to be confused with freedom by wham but this freedom 90 massive song massive video and as someone who has a deep sentimental love and affection for the supermodels of the late 80s and early 90s you have this really interesting thing where you have a British Vogue cover in January 1990 with all these mega superstars like Linda Evangelista, Naomi Campbell, Christy Turlington, Cindy Crawford, and Tatiana Patitz, I believe is how you say her name. Yep. And instead of George Michael being in the video, they just rounded up these girls and put them in instead. And I, I'm, I was not into George Michael as a kid, but this video, you're just like, this is like the sexiest fucking thing I've ever seen. Oh yeah, no, I'm, see, that's the thing too. As a kid, and even now, I'm a big fashion fan. Uh, I watched, there used to be this show on CNN called Style with Elsa Clench, and also another show called like Fashion TV. And they were like these, you know, sort of syndicated shows they put on the weekends. And like my parents were, like I said, kind of like, you know, like, oh, you can't watch this, you can't watch that. But they'd let me watch like shows about fashion. So I'm like a, like an 11 year old. and I'm like, I know who her Verge is. I know like who Balenciaga is. I know who like John Galliano, who was that up and comer then was, and Vivian Westwood. Like I'm a little kid and I know all about this stuff. Just as was like, oh, I thought it was really neat. And I liked the fashions and I liked art. So I was like, oh, fashion is just clothing art. Great. So I was really into it. So seeing this video for me was like huge. Cause I was like, oh my God, it's all the girls like in one video. And of a guy, I think it's a good singer too. Oh, this is so cool. It's all together, all like this. Yay. You know? And so I just took it as, Oh, it's the girls I like, and they're in a video, and they look really, really cool. They look and, insanely cool. Yeah, they're they're going all in. Like, oh, like all of them could have been like Millie Vanilli rock stars, just lip syncing songs if they wished to. <laughs> yeah, and then the, the thing is, I mean, I mean, I'm watching this, and I'm like, wow, they're just wearing kind of regular clothes. I mean, okay, not but, Cindy Crawford. Know. She's not wearing a not right. wearing a stitch in the bathtub. Yeah. I mean, you have Linda Evangelista, who's wearing this weird, big turtleneck sweater thing. Um, you know, I mean, Tur uh, Turlington's running around in a big white sheet, uh, which apparently they said <laughs> they said that that blew the budget for the film. Like, like for the video, like they they had to buy that gigantic sheet, and like Fincher wanted a certain type of linen because the can like the the light would go through it. So they blew the entire budget out, and they said that the the I guess like the um the the makeup designer had to just give her clothes to them to wear they're like yeah wear, wear these clothes and that's what you're wearing that's why they almost look like pre-grunge that it reminds it's almost like grunge didn't exist we didn't know what it would be but this is like they're in an old crappy loft it's all wet and gross but it's very grungy because they're not glamorous looking at all they're not yeah, like they are on the runway shooting in like industrial wet decaying kind of urban landscapes both as films as well as his videos but just it just 
photographically it gives you all these textures because you have all the all, all the water reflecting light he loves smoke but yeah but like high contrast lighting lots of water lots of rain just everything water flowing off of everything and it just it it's beautifully atmospheric and it makes your videos look fucking fantastic there's a reason why you hose down a street with water before you shoot on it because it just makes it look cooler yeah, I mean, and that's the thing, too. It's like this grungy place, but the, yet, yet again, no dust. He doesn't believe in dust, but he believes in, like, sweat and sort of griminess and and smoke and steam. Um, and I just, I love the fact that also, yet again, another, like, I mean, almost everything he has, I, mean, I would say half or more, has it starting with, like, you see the internals of the CD player. So you see the lasers going into the CD player playing the CD. I mean, there's so many of his uh, videos start out with a record, starting a tape player, starting some sort of stereo equipment. Oh, what's and that, that one from the 2000s where it's just like extreme close-ups of somebody's like office toys, like dancing? Oh, is that, that is a Nine Inch Nails video. Yeah, like the screens dancing mm -hmm. and like the coffees wiggling, but like the entire thing is done in these like extreme close-ups, like, you know, the little pin cushions, like, but it's just, it's just the desk is having this little like dance party. But once again, mm -hmm. he just loves breaking down all, like going into the innards of all that little technology. Yeah, and I mean that's a that's a beautiful shot. That that just that CD like the laser thing in and of itself. I don't really know how he did that. It must be some animation. I'm a supposing, uh, but that's beautiful looking. That's what and a also, few years of industrial light and magic will give you. I would imagine because yeah, I mean it looks it looks sharp nowadays. And also the fact that George Michael is not in his video was hyper radical at the time. Um, I mean think about it. This is a, I mean this is a political statement on his point, a, a personal political statement on his point. Most people don't know maybe that. He had his video called Faith that was, you know, before this. And it was him on a stage looking super sexy, wearing these like hot pants and like a leather jacket. He's playing a guitar next to a jukebox. It's sexy. It's a great song. And in this video, he refuted everything with that. He said, I don't want to be that anymore. Yeah, there's I'm a blowing. quote that I found on Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. He said, at some point in your career, the situation between yourself and the camera reverses. For a certain number of years, you court it and you need it, but ultimately it needs you more. And it's a bit like a relationship. The minute that happens, it turns you off. And it does feel like it's taken something from you. So yeah, so he made a, a very clear, conscious decision to, I mean, at this point he says, I would, he said, I would like to never step in front of a camera again. Obviously, if you're a pop star, that is not really realistic. But it was a bold choice. But I love how instead of himself, he just says, but instead, because obviously supermodels that use them to sell cigarettes, use them to sell Coca-Cola, use them to sell anything. And this is, I feel like the late 80s was maybe in a lot of ways kind of the peak of the glitz and glamour and superficiality of the 80s. And in a way, I kind of miss that now where it's like there's... It's just all about the superficiality and the beauty of the image. But it's like, we're just going to give you the most beautiful creatures who have ever lived <laughs> to just sell this video instead of me. Yeah, I mean, and it's also interesting, too. I mean, he blows up. So they blow up with a jukebox in it, the guitar and the leather jacket they set on fire. And it's like, you know, by basically like, you know, you blow up the past to cleanse and purify yourself for the future. And also, it's funny because this is very much a like, I am gay. I am coming out of the closet sort of anthem. But I was, like I said, I was 12 when this came out, and I didn't understand that. So there's a, the line where he says, you shake your ass to notice fast that some mistakes were built to last. And I'm taking that as a kid, like going, oh, man, he must have felt like they must have told him he was fat. And he must feel bad about that. And that's why he doesn't. <laughs> and like that was my child like thing where I didn't get it. That like, oh, I get it. That's what he's not talking about that. He's talking about, oh, they realized he was gay. And they were like, don't be gay. Um, and also when you think about it, fashion is always has always been like incredibly gay friendly. 
So you have a lot of women from the fashion industry in this. So it's like, it's a very, you know, sort of, it goes along with all of the different medias that would have been gay friendly at the time. Fashion. This was right around the period where, I don't know who started this, but the rule was for, you know, growing up in a very heterosexual Southern environment that if you put in, a guy can wear an earring, however... You cannot put it in your right ear. You have to put it in your left. And apparently that was George Michael had an, an earring in his right ear. So if you put an earring in your right ear, you were gay like George Michael. If you put it in your left, you, you got to pass. And so I, at age 15, I did pierce my left ear. <laughs> and I was like, totally straight. But it's just, it's funny just how quick, I mean, Grant, we already lived in the era of Queen at this point and everybody loves and adores Freddie Mercury, but even so, like after Queen is, is starting to fade, the idea of a, of a gay pop star was still a difficult pill for a lot of folks to swallow. Yeah, and I mean, this is also still, we're in the middle of the AIDS crisis when there was still not a lot of help for people. Um, so, and there was still like really like virulent talk against people who had were sick and, and who were seen like, oh, they're sick, they must be gay, then they're destroying the world. And it was just horrifying. And he was like, you know what, I'm just gonna come out and be like, I am gay. And too bad, deal with it. This is my this is my freedom, you know. And also the fact that he did pass away, what, two years ago now? It's almost three years ago on Christmas of complications from AIDS, which is like, well, George Michael, now Christmas is not any more Christmas. It's George Michael Day for me. Um, but yeah, you know, I mean, this is just, this is a revelation video. And it's funny because the next one he made, not with David Fincher, but the Too Funky, he did get behind the camera, same people in the video, and it's very glamorous. But this one is just, it's atmospheric and it's just gorgeous. And it's like, I want to live in that loft, you know? That was well, like my childlike song, dream. It soars and mm -hmm. so the combination of the song is i mean there are a lot of these videos where the video is pretty good or the song's pretty good but when you have the, a great song combined with a great video that's when you get that's where the magic happens and i feel like this is definitely one of david fincher's finest hours and obviously one of george michael's finest hour where you have oh. this the perfect harmony between the the song and the visual because you, you got to have both firing on all cylinders to, to to create a classic yeah and he did that and so did all you know, all all the ladies and the and the guys there. You know, they're not as well known, but they you know, they all did just fabulous job. And it's yeah, just I, like, I didn't look up the guys' names, but I I, I had to, I had to look up the, the the lovely young ladies. But speaking of guys, like we got another great one around this time. got a gun Aerosmith which is it I guess strong contender for one of Fincher's best I still think Vogue is the best but Janie's got a gun it's in the conversation as one of the strongest oh absolutely because I think honestly Aerosmith's finest hour because 
you know, I mean, they're not exactly the deepest band in the world. They're literally a Disney attraction at this point. They have a roller coaster at Disney World, like the Aerosmith roller coaster. So they're not, you know, they're, they're damned mainstream. But this is not mainstream, especially at the time it's come out. It's a song about child sex abuse. Yeah, it's a song it's, about incest and child molestation starring... Uh, Christopher Guest's brother was it Nicholas Guest what's, what's his yes. little brother's name yeah, yes, and, Nick- and you got Leslie Ann Warren an actress mm-hmm. that I always love and adore seeing in anything I mean, I lo- first time I saw her was in Clue but she's done a million shows and movies but I'm a massive Leslie Ann Warren freak and so when I saw her in this I, I, I hadn't seen this video in 30 years when I watched it yesterday the day before I was like what the fuck is Leslie Ann Warren I couldn't believe the actors that were appearing in this yeah I mean and th- this looks really really modern too so this is like 1989 it has a lot of like flashes of light going on it's very bright and it's well bright and dark at the same time um because it almost feels like the detectives who are running around trying to solve the murder mysteries like their flashlights are going through aerosmith on the on their stage or something but Um, we're totally in uh, zodiac and uh seven and like gone girl territory with you have this crime saga this down and dirty crime saga unfolding amidst watching aerosmith do their thing and i love that contrast between rock stars at the top of their game and this really sordid seedy kind of neo-noir yeah i mean and also i mean what the, i mean the, the the story itself is interesting you know it's like you know poor Janie, she's being raped by her father so she decides to kill him uh with a gun right she's like i'm gonna get you and i did and you know it's 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 parsed out in it's really creepy way where you see like her in a bikini or dad her stepdad or whatever looking at dad stepdad much i I don't know why I always assumed it was a stepdad, but, um, you know, looking at her and it's like, ooh, that is just wrong, 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 wrong. And it's that sort of thing where at this time, this is when people started to also, this is another political issue where people started to realize like, yeah, children are abused and we need to talk about this in public and make it stop. Uh, And I also like the fact that at the end of this little story where Janie kills him, the cops don't like arrest her. They're kind of like, yeah, he deserved it. And we're going to come Yeah. We're going to put a blanket around you and, and, and take you home and, and it's okay. Kind of thing. And I think that's great. Like it's empowering of them. And also it's kind of weird that it comes from Aerosmith of all people who did ragdoll and love in an elevator and all these like totally Dude looks like a lady. Yeah. Completely <laughs> utterly different than this. And I mean, where this came from, I mean, apparently Steven Tyler said he was just, he was pissed off that this was happening to kids and why can't, you know, why is this happening? So he wrote Even this song. Even a shallow, superficial rock star can be capable of tremendous depth from time yeah. to time. Yeah, but I mean, this is, if you're going to watch an Aerosmith video, definitely check this one out because there's also, something to it. I always forget how strong a singer was. They aren't necessarily my cup of tea when it comes to bands that I want to listen to on a regular basis. But as you're watching this, you're like, oh my God. God, like he could sing his dick off. Like, like he just had a very high, incredible range, incredible power behind his voice. I, I, it was a vivid reminder of why he became a rock star in the first place. Oh, absolutely. All right, well, shall we get into a little Paula Abdul? Oh, this yeah, might be time yeah. To talk about a little tap dancing. That's what I was saying. I mean, I, I even wrote my my notes, tappa, 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 like the, 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 the um, there's a Simpsons episode where Lisa learns how to tap dance. Oh, gotcha. She teaches, tappa, 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 because that is like, I think there's two to three videos. They're almost all the same. There's like straight up uh, Forever Your Girl and, um, well, not so much, just those two are very similar. 
they're kind of like a backstagey sort of thing, and it's well, I would say forever your girl. You get a young Elijah Wood, age ten, dressed up in That was Elijah Wood. It's a little Elijah Wood snapping the temple at the at the at the desk. Okay, I wasn't sure who that was because I was I I couldn't I was just like I'm sorry he was eight at the time, (laughs) eight year old Elijah Wood. Oh my God, that's so cute. Yeah, because that's. That's an adorable video. It's like backstage, like look at us during rehearsal footage. Very cute, like, you know, backstage thing. And also you put little kids dressed up like adults. It's adorable. It's adorable. And Paul is teaching them how to, you know, the choreography. And she's a fabulous dancer. Well, that's the thing is like this song and this album was her pivot point where she was tired of basically giving away all of her cool moves to other stars. She was a huge choreographer already for like George Michael, ZZ Top, Duran Duran, Janet Jackson. But finally she was like, why don't I just sing this shit myself? And so she hired a few vocal coaches and some good producers. And for a debut album, she just came exploding out of the gate with all these hits and her own style. It's, it's, it's very rare where you see like a star is born quite literally before your eyes, like with one album. But boom, this album did that, and she she went seemingly out of nowhere. Suddenly, she was everywhere. Yeah, I mean, Forever Your Girl even has like a little like parody of popular music videos of the time. Like, there's a Robert Palmer. Um, the kids sort of, dressed up as the yeah. irresistible characters. Yeah. And, then there's like, you know, boy and a girl, they're like at a bar, like going on a date. And then some of it I couldn't figure out, like the references, like there's a little boy in a hat and in a Nehru suit. I have no idea what that's supposed to be a parody of, because um, I just forgot to time, I guess. Um, but yeah, that's adorable. And, and also then, a lot of great grainy black and white. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. we can't, can't enough can we can't say enough about David Venture's love and reverence for glorious black and white at a time where nothing was in black and white at all anywhere. He was shooting hit video after hit video in black and white, and he ran away, he almost kind of single-handedly kept the format alive at this time, whether you're talking about straight up or Vogue. But if you want to see why people are in love with black and white cinematography, well, watch Vogue, watch straight up, and you'll see he's one of the few directors that kind of still recognizes it, this is like the, the peak of glamour and so on and so forth. But I think of all these, I'm, I'm kind of divided between Cold-hearted as a video, I'm very affectionate toward because it's a love song to All That Jazz, which is my favorite all-time musical, the Bob Fosse music movie. And it's dark, it's depressing, it's tragic, and it's incredibly powerful. And during All That Jazz, you have this incredible take off with us kind of like Air America scene where all these dancers including Valeria from Conan the Barbarian they're just male female doesn't matter everybody's just getting it on ripping their tops off just boning while dancing it's incredibly erotic cold hearted doesn't quite go to the same extremes that Bob Fosse's film does but it's a very loving homage to that scene so once again for fans of film history the, the movie references are all over these videos but in terms of like just sheer catchiness and fun and excitement i think the straight up video is, I, I mean, as i mentioned but when we were just starting to record the song's been stuck in my head for a couple of days now because of this f- fucking video <laughs> and i can't quite get it out yeah i mean in the black and white levels on that it's so cool i don't know i mean she's wearing like i mean it's shot in black and white and she's up against like there's a you know it's the screen behind her is between black and white so she's dancing and it's just like it's so cool the contrast it's so perfectly calibrated so you can see her even when she's on the black side she still shows up and then it's really cool then there's a dancing guy and he's dancing around it's just the way the black and white is used in straight up is so awesome 
Um, also, when you compare it to Madonna's videos, like Madonna, Madonna obviously was a very hardworking, diligent dancer. But then when Paula Abdul starts dancing, oh, this is another thing. This is another level. This is this is the teacher who teaches the stars how to dance. But you realize, oh, I'm, it's like I'm seeing a black belt instead of maybe like a purple belt or a brown belt. And suddenly the dancing just goes to a completely new level. The, the tap dancing that opens up the video is light years beyond what some of uh, her peers or competitors were were capable of at the time. Oh yeah, it's fabulous. I mean, it's a lovely showcase too because like Fincher's saying, like, hey, look, like, look at this dancing. It's a nice little like intro part to the video. He's he's showing her off in such a wonderful way. He was really great at showcasing the natural talent of of a person even before they become like a superstar. And that's why, like, you know, just the way you love me, like the little one, like another one that he did with her. She's super glossy in that one color like very gloss out of like you know it's about the guy like she doesn't need his riches but of course there's just showing all of these riches in which version of that do you prefer because um, fincher famously shot two the song they did it once and then when the single got re-released they did another version i like the second one a little more i don't know why it just feels more kind of like she's like kind of like sexy she's like got wet hair but she still looks glamorous i don't know i like the second one Fair enough. More so. But yeah, Cold Hearted, though, that's the one. If you're going to watch that, especially the Bob Fosse, they literally, when the record execs at the intro of the video are walking in, they mention, oh, it's going to be like a Bob Fosse sort of dance yeah. routine. And then it's it's fabulous. I mean, I they pull all... down the shades and like stripping mm-hmm. down to their undies, and it's like, ooh. And you right. have a, yeah, and you have two male dancers dancing quite sexily together, which was quite progressive in 1989. It's only but, like a few shots, but, but still. Said, that's from, I mean, straight out of Bob Fosse's flicks. Yeah. So if you want to talk about progressivism, Bob Fosse beat him to it by 10 years. So. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So like that cold-hearted, fabulous stuff. And it's yeah. just it's and a fun a very video. catchy tune as well. Yeah, yeah. So well done, Paula. I mean, that one, definitely check that one out if you don't want to get something stuck in your head for days. <laughs> <I> think. <laughs> That's the thing. is like, I mean, the late 80s was like the the golden age of catchy tunes. So if you start watching these videos, you're, you're going to have a tough time shaking them. Yeah. And then um, I think we should talk a little bit about some Billy Idol Cradle of Love, which might irk people nowadays, but it's awesome. So I don't want people to be irked by it. But um, Wait, why, why are people irked by it? Because they don't like well, Billy Idol or, or, or they don't like the premise of the video or what? The premise of the video, they probably think it's exploitive, even though, I mean, it's really just kind of fun, if anything. I mean, people always talk about like exploitation, but I watch a lot of movies because of something being exploited, whether it's a giant monster or a beautiful girl, whatever the case may be. But like, I mean, the whole genre of exploitation is what draws people to the cinema in the first place because it's, it's a shallow, kind of superficial experience, but at least you're getting precisely what you paid for. So if you want to see an insanely hot girl dancing to Billy Idol, then that's what you get. That's, that's, that's cradle, cradle of Love. Which is, but it's a, it's a really smart thing too because uh, I guess Billy Idol had broken his leg uh, in a motorcycle accident it was right before he was going to do this. And he was like, I can't stand like he couldn't walk. So they had to like, how are we going to make this video? So it's like a really brilliant conceit. He's just in the Warhol prints in the back in at, like as a painting kind of. And so the action is not on him. It's it's really a story about this girl whose tape recorder broke and she has to listen to this song. Absolutely. Has to listen to it. And this and nerd then, is just 
terrified and fascinated by this spectacle unfolding in his place. And of course, he touches her at one point, and she naturally spills wine all over her clothes. She's like, oh, I guess these are coming off. And the dancing just intensifies, and she's like going upside down. I mean, it's, I go to strip clubs. I think strip clubs are fantastic. And it's, it's like going to a strip club, but just without the nudity. Yeah, and I mean, it's like she's dancing awesome. I mean, it looks great the way she's filmed, the way all the little minutiae's filmed, like when the stereo breaks or he pulls the plugs out of the stereo to make it stop and it doesn't stop. And he's like, I can't make it stop. And there's still like, yet again, more stereo equipment being shown uh, because Fincher loves stereo equipment. And it's just, it's hilarious. It's such a silly, silly video, but the song is great. My God, that song is so, so catchy. And it's a great conceit. How are you going to get the artist in when they're actually injured? Well, just put him in the background and make this silly story out of this girl dancing. And now you have a video. And also and, an interesting bit of film history. It includes clips from the adventures of Ford Fairlane. However, yes, Andrew, Andrew Dice <gasps> Clay had been banned from MTV for inappropriate comments and content, etc. So you're showing scenes from the movie that is his big star vehicle, but you can't show Andrew Dice Clay in it, which is an unusual thing. I can't. What was it? What? Which line was it in his jokes that got him banned from MTV? I think the Hickory Dickory Doc. Uh, yeah, joke. your mother's a whore. I ain't your pop, or whatever that one was. Yeah, yeah. That was a famous one. Yeah, he just had he had these rhymes, and the crowd would show up for his shows and say the lines in unison with him. They knew all of his best gags. So at the end, he would go through all these rhymes, like, Little Miss Muffet sat on a tuffet. And and he'd go off into some disgusting territory. But the crowd loved it. But MTV was starting to pivot into cleaner, more mainstream, kind of corporate kind of uh, branding at that point. Well, and I mentioned, I mean, I think he's also said that at that time, like, he was playing, like, a character, obviously, on stage. And then people started to, like believe that he was that person all the time like yeah. especially when he went to msg i mean he's selling out like a thirty thousand seat stadium stand up stand-up comedian at the time yeah when he first got started he had several characters he would do on stage that character became his most popular one so he just started doing that when the entire show and then he started to almost kind of believe his own hype and he kind of morphed into it and so now when you see him in an interview you know he's an old gray man he still kind of is in character. <laughs> it's just bizarre. He got trapped by the success of that character. It's not necessarily my style of comedy that I'm drawn to, but I totally get that um, you know, people love it. I just when I, the idea of being banned by MTV just makes me realize like, oh, okay, so the the era of, you know, it being like this risk risk seeking platform of the eighties is drawing to a close. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, and now he's back. I mean, he's done the. He did that show Vinyl. Uh, he was in A Star Is Born. Also, in, I mean, uh, so the Blue Jasmine, the the Woody Allen flick, and so yeah, he's he's popping right. all all over the place. Yeah, I mean, and it shows that he's you know just a, just just an actor, and unfortunately, we got the wrong idea about him. But unfortunately, but uh, yeah, and I guess do you want to do some honorable mentions? My God, there's so many honorable. I mentions. mean, you sent me an awesome list. <laughs> And I, the list did not include you. Did you eliminated some, but you put. But we've got the Rolling Stones. We got Steve Winwood. We got the Wallflowers. Rick Springfield. Oh, we already talked Rick Springfield. Yeah. Uh, Jody Watley, Jermaine Stewart, Gypsy Kings, Don Henley, Perfect Circle, Johnny Hates Jazz, and Nine Inch Nails. I think of all these, the one that I saw the most was probably Jermaine Stewart's "We Don't Have to Take Our Clothes Off," which is from '86 because my little sister 
love this song. Just thought it was the best. <laughs> I heard it a lot with his voice. It's so high and it's such a, just a funny, catchy tune. It's not necessarily the world's greatest video, but I, age 10, for whatever reason, I got exposed to the song a disproportionate amount. Well, I think this song is like, I mean, I love the video and the fact that it shows like Fincher was still getting, he was getting there, you know, with yeah. his visual style. So you have that they're, they're on the stage and they're dancing, you know, hit, hit Jermaine Stewart and his band and they're dancing and there's like still like, it's a white stage and they're, you know, so it's black and white. It's in color, but it's more of a very stripped down thing. And then there's titles. I think, well, no, actually, I'm thinking of the Jody Watley video. But this yeah. one has, like, where he mentions, like, cherry wine, and then a picture of a wine glass goes up with, like, a cherry in it. Yeah, yeah. And it's, and it's and switching then, between aspect ratios. You get, it's going mm -hmm. back and forth between 1.85 to 1 and 2.35 to 1, which is kind of fun just to see how Fincher's playing with the format and that sort of thing. Yeah, and then there's a neat transition where he's on stage, and, like, it spins around, the camera spins around him, and it, he, like, changes his outfit, like, four times. Like, it's like, boom, 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 boom. Like it changes. It's just really well done. The editing is really, really cute. Um, it's a funny song. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, a, it's, it's, it's catchy it, as hell. And at age 10, it was scandalous. This yeah. idea of even talking about taking your clothes off in a song, I couldn't believe it. But another song I'd forgotten even existed until you sent me this list. And I couldn't, I didn't even recognize it when I saw it written down. But I started playing the video and suddenly I was like, Bambaleo! And I had forgotten. What a, that was like the Macarena of its day. It was such a popular fucking song by the Gypsy Kings. No, I mean, that song was ridiculous. That was around the time when people were like learning about, I don't know, world music was becoming a popular thing. So there's more of that. And that thing was everywhere. I mean, his in that video for him, too. It's like it's like they're on a stage and it's like a color block situation where there's like different like it's like a pink background, a blue background, very plain, very just clean, cut dry. There's a dancing girl. And that's about it. I mean, there's really nothing too wild about it. But that song like was almost it became a parody because it was so big at the time. It was and everywhere. It was, like, it was this only representation of this like Spanish language music. And then like and there's even like parodies of it. Like um, you remember the superstar of the movie that Bruce McCullough uh, directed from Kids in the Hall. Uh, Will Ferrell's in it. Um, it's basically like it. it's all it's based off an SNL sketch about Mary Catherine Gallagher, the little Catholic schoolgirl. I don't know. It sounds like oh god, it's a wonderful film because it's directed by one of the Kids in the Hall guys. Um, so there's like basically Will Ferrell's in he's in high school and he's in a dance competition and him and his his um, dance partner, of course, danced to Bombaleo. And it's very cheesy. <laughs> it's this very cheesy, like them trying to act like they're Spanish. And it's, and of course he's also like, like 35 and he's playing like a 17 year old. So 
hilarious. That, and then also there was a 2006, there's a film called Take the Lead. Um, it's about like Antonio Banderas is a substitute teacher who's trying to help these, you know, wayward kids. And of course, he's a he's a ballroom dance teacher. And there's this really cool scene where they him and this woman do this really sexy dance to Bombaleo. Hot stuff. Um, I mean, the song, it holds up pretty I think if you released mm-hmm. that song today, brand new and no one had heard before, it would be a hit again. Yeah, it's uh, once again, it's like what makes a song catchy versus not catchy. It's totally subjective and it's totally it's hard to put your finger on it but it's like the moment you hear a hit song even if it's not a hit you're like oh that's gonna be a fucking hit like it's so instantly like self self like self-evident that a song's destined to become a hit and you listen to 15 seconds of bambaleo and you're like yes that's got hit written all over it yeah so then that that was that was a fun one um i i do i do have a little like contention with the Nine Inch Nails uh, only video. I mean, it is clever. It's a very clever video. Interesting, I guess, CGI they're using to make all the little desk things dance. But uh, as a huge Nine Inch Nails fan, it is like probably the most boring video they've ever put out. I mean, ah, gotcha. Interesting. Because, I mean, when you look at a lot of his other stuff, I mean, it's there's a significant amount of like lack of you think by 2005 Fincher's heart's just not in the the, the <laughs> format anymore and he's because at that point he's doing like I mean he's done like Panic Room and things like that and I guess he's about to do Zodiac and uh, what's that one he did with Brad Pitt Aging in Reverse uh, the, the the Curious Life of Benjamin Button that's the one Fincher film I've never seen and me neither I and, I and I don't think I ever will because I, I love Brad Pitt but I don't need to see a movie that's just devoted to watching him become hot that's like I know he's hot. He's been hot all along. That's not enough of a hook for me to watch this stupid movie. I I just, lo- yeah, I've heard just bad things about it overall. I'm like, I'm not going to take my time. But I'm just feeling like, I think they were like, hey, this is a really cool concept for this video. And let's do this. And it just, the song itself is sort of, it has a very just a regular drum beat. doesn't really change a lot through the whole song. This was also probably their least successful album of to date. Gotcha. Uh, with it came off of With Teeth, which is probably like it was Trent Reznor's first album where he was sober. And you can tell it's a good thing he's sober. I'm happy. But after that, then he started to up his game again uh, with like Year Zero and Ghosts and other albums. So I guess this was from like a technical perspective. It is like in that amazing. It's so heavily reliant upon CGI. I think it's like 90 It's largely CGI. There's like a human hand at one point. So if you're mm-hmm. interested in seeing a filmmaker, I guess that's what's beautiful about doing commercials and music videos. It gives you a chance to play with tools before you have to put them to use in your, in your films. So you can see Fincher's enjoying playing with some new technical toys. Yeah. But otherwise, I mean, you know, just watch closer or something, not by David Fincher, but there's other nine Nails videos that are way more interesting. Um, I think the Perfect Circle video is interesting. It has that sort of, it looks like Seven, like all scratched up so, and everything. Yeah, no, you, it's got Seven written all over it. But this is 2000, so it's obviously like he's appropriating from himself. He is. He's absolutely appropriate. And it was cool, though, because this is like, and I only say this because I am a Tool fan, but this is like Perfect Circle is like Tool for girls, which was the pejorative thing we used to say about them. Um, because they're not like, you know, 18-minute long songs that are prog rock. I mean, they're regular sized songs and but you actually see Maynard's face slightly in this video what a revelation because you never see his face generally ever and he's wearing a wig and that's kind of cool um because yeah perfect circle was a totally different game than tool so 
that was just interesting to see that video. But that's kind of like just like a performance video, nothing yeah. sort of well, amazing. Cool I, I played bass in a cheesy rock and roll band in eighth grade, and I, I thought it was really cool. But I like the bit with the bass player when she puts her hair up in a bun, like she yes. puts it, and she does it. They they sped it up just a little bit, but she has like you know like four or five seconds before she has to resume. She ties it up and then boom and she goes back to her baseline so that, that was a cool little bit so shout out to all bass players out there absolutely i wonder uh, about the uh, the stones one because i'm a big stones uh, fan and i did go see the voodoo lounge tour summer 94 i saw them play some giant venue in north carolina my buddy from my roommate from uh, boarding school we drove down there and I remember we stole a bottle of rum from my mom we got fucked up beyond description. I remember we were so dumb and so inexperienced. We we saw a sticker on it had a serial number, and we thought that the serial number was the price tag. I was like, I was like, I stole like a seven hundred dollar bottle of rum. Like the idea that a seven hundred dollar bottle of rum would even exist. It's like if it's some fifteen hundred dollar like Captain Morgan just like rot gut bullshit. <laughs> but we were so terrified that we we're gonna get home, and she'd be like waiting in the door with like a paddle, ready to beat the fuck out of us for stealing her her super pricey rum. But so. I have affection for this period, and I love. It's weird that I like the video for "Love Is Strong." I don't really like the song "Love Is Strong." I mean, the song is fine. It's 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 a nice song. I mean, I have no problem with it. I think my favorite um, Stones album is "Some Girls," which is like kind of like the disco album because it's easy. I mean, for me, it'd have to be either "Exile on Main Street" or "Beggar's Banquet." Those are the ones I'm always kind of torn between. Those are good. Yeah. So I mean, the song itself. I mean, it's it's fine. It doesn't. Blow me away, but I mean the video is super cool looking. Oh, it's I'm, awesome! They're walk, they're they and a bunch of super hot girls are stumbling on New York as giants, and you see them like kind of waking up in all these weird places. But the camera angles are interesting, and a lot of those neighborhoods and a lot of those intersections right near my place uh, where I live in the village. So it's just fun seeing the stones and all these beautiful girls stumbling around the city like the t the, <laughs> the height of buildings. So I like the video, but the song I I, I never need to hear that song again. It's like there's so many other stone songs that I that I would rather listen to. And I think it's interesting too, because that was uh, 94. So yeah. at He's the in time, recovery mode. It, yeah, this is pre seven, but post Alien Three. Yeah, and we thought that the Stones were old then, and they're still all around. <laughs> so like that's wonderful. I mean, we saw Charlie Watts. Like he's playing the the rooftop. Like I don't know. The, the, he's playing like the drums. Like they're the top of the roof. It, I mean, my God, these guys are still around. Thank goodness. Um, but it's interesting because yeah. even now. This year, there was a Lana Del Rey video that came out called Do In Time, and it's it's like her uh, doing Love is Strong on the West Coast, walking around Venice Beach as gotcha. a gigantic woman. Um, it's not exactly the same. It, it's, it, it, diver it diverges a little bit, but I was like, you know, still cool idea. Like the 50-foot woman is a really cool idea. The attack so. of the 50-foot woman will never go out of style. Now, a lot of people out there think that Steve Winwood's video Roll With It from 88 is one of the best videos ever. I don't necessarily agree, but what do you think? This, at least stylistically, it's pretty different from the other ones. It's like sepia-toned, mm -hmm. a lot of cool cool angles and a lot of extreme close-ups of like boots and instruments, but it's basically just a bunch of people like dancing in a blues bar and getting down, but it's probably the closest he comes to Dusty in that it's sepia-toned, but it's still very, very clean. Everybody's still very beautiful. Everybody's still very stylish. But it's just, yeah, it's a good old-fashioned blues tune, which is pretty unusual in comparison to some of these other ones. I mean, that was a huge hit, absolutely. I mean, that song was everywhere. And, I mean, the, the, you know, the video itself is lovely. I mean, the dancing is great, the choreography. It feels like it's supposed to be, like, in the 
the the 20s or 30s, maybe 40s, but it's today. It's that kind of thing where you don't know the time period, but the people are dressed really pretty. And yeah, they're all sweaty. And there's, you know, it's, it's a lovely, I, I think it's a lovely video. Um, overall, I mean, best video he's done or one of the best, I mean, definitely one of the great ones he's done um, because of the color in it. He's, I mean, his, he tends to go with blue tones, either black and white or blue tones when he's using color. And this is sepia, which he didn't seem to do that much of sepia. So in that regard, I think it's fantastic. Oh, actually, Agent End of the Innocence by Don Henley is sort of sepia. It's like a sepia black and white. So those were about this, this the year apart from each other. So, um, And I always think of, I don't know why I, I grouped Steve Winwood and Don Henley together. I don't know what that's about in my head. Um, yeah, the the end of innocence, the end of the innocence video is the only one in your list. Where as I was watching it, I was like, I can't handle his voice and I can't handle the song. I'm <laughs> skipping ahead, so I, I watch like little pieces of it. But it's funny, like pop music, it's so subjective and so individual and so personal. And every once in a while, you'll hear something where just instantaneously you just vomit it right back up and just reject it entirely. And the end of the innocence was one of those songs where I was like, nope, I'm out, I'm done. So yeah, I, I kind of had yeah. to sort of skip that one. There's one shot in that that's interesting near the end of the video. He's in a, he's standing in a big field now, like high tension wires. And it, I swear it must be the same place that they filmed the end of seven when they find wow, what's in the box, you know, like where they're out there in yep. the middle of nowhere. It looks like the same location. I, I almost think it is. Um, so must be out in California somewhere, I guess. Um, and so that's kind of cool that he went back to that, for seven, which I'm assuming he did, or at least he likes that look. Every music video is a potential location scout for a future feature film. Yeah, yeah. So that I thought was kind of cool, but yeah, I understand. Like that song too. Oh my god, they played that so much. It was very much like my mom was into it, and like, oh, not not really. If you get, I'll do the Eagles, but the Don Henley solo stuff is not really my my, my gig. So. I hear ya. Well, I guess of the remaining songs, we got three left that we have not mentioned. We got mm -hmm. Shattered Dreams, Real Love, and Sixth Avenue Heartache. Any special love or affection for any of these three? Well, I think like jo the Jody Watley, Real Love, and the uh, the um, Johnny Hayes Jazz. Those are very similar. Yet again, like a black and white aesthetic, where you know it's just like a clean aesthetic where it's like black and white, but we're showing a lot of like inserts of you know titles or things like Jody Watley. Yet again, beautiful woman. My God, she's so It could have been beautiful. a Madonna or a Paula Abdul mm -hmm. video. It just happens to be Jody Watley instead. Exactly. And he was actually, the that year, he was nominated with that video. Um, so in 89, he was nominated for VMA for Jody Watley's Real Love, Steve Winwood's role with As Well as Express Yourself. And actually, no, I'm sorry. It was only... Um, no, it was, a, it was all those three, and he won for Madonna's video for gotcha. Express Yourself. So, like, that just shows alone, like, oh, my God. Like, he's, he, he kind of, he could have won the entire category. He was almost the entire category. Um, yeah, and, I, they, and the Johnny Hates Jazz, it's like, the Shattered Dreams, kind of a catchy tune, but it has a really cool aesthetic to it, black and white. It looks very stylized. Uh, it looked to it. And I guess the last one on this list is The Wallflowers. Uh, which is kind of a little different than what he did, the Sixth Avenue heartache, um, because it's photographs. Yeah, it's a lot of black and white photographs of the band hanging out in New York, like in old places where they used to hang out and where they first met and so on and so forth. And if you're a fan of New York locations, it's cool. I've always had a little bit of trouble with the wallflowers and then I'm much more of a Bob Dylan guy as opposed to his son. And 
I just would rather listen to Bob Dylan than the sun always. <laughs> so I have a hard time, but I know he had shitloads of albums and songs and everything. I never quite understood I, because in the nineties I was listening to so much old rock and roll anyway. I just never understood why somebody would spend their time listening to the wallflowers when they could just throw in blood on the tracks or blonde on blonde or something like that. That it was, it was hot, man. I mean, I actually saw the wallflowers at this time, like debut album at my college the first year, so it was like they were constantly on MTV. It was like 1997, and I got to see them. They played this. I went to Muhlenberg College in uh, Allentown, Pennsylvania, my first year, and they played the school. So I was like, "Well, yeah, I'm going." Because well, no girls, yeah, loved and adored them. And that, yeah. But I wasn't even into them until I went to the show. I was only going because I was like, "Well, they're playing on campus. Let's go." And they actually, the band is fantastic. And when you see him in person, you're like, "Holy crap, he's actually really good looking in person." Not so much when I see him in the video. But the band itself, they they won me over. I was like, okay, they're good um, because the, the the entire band is they all they they know their stuff. So I was like really surprised by that because I only went to the show just because they were like across campus. But uh, and I got to see them at the height of their you know at the height of their fame. So that's kind of cool. But this video is kind of neat just because he used like a uh, I, I believe he said he used a photographic technique where they're actually all photographs and kind of layered them together to make them look like they're moving. Yeah, it's almost like stop motion, but when, but you, not, look, when you look right? at his overall career, there's incredible just how many, I mean, once again, take all the feature films and pretend they don't exist, but just as a music video director, I'm looking here on Wikipedia, they say Fincher won two Grammy Awards for Best Music Video, um, and then he got three MTV Video Music Awards for Best Direction, and then... He's uh, they said alongside Spike Jones, he's the most one of the most awarded directors in the category. He also earned back-to-back -back MTV Video Music Awards for Best Direction in '89 and for Vogue in 1990. So yeah, and then he earned in 1990 he earned three of the four available nominations in the Best Direction category. So yeah, three of the four, uh, which you just mentioned. But it's just incredible how for a couple of years there, he was like a one-man industry <laughs> in a lot of ways. Yeah, but I mean, you can see that he never gave it up, though. He, I don't think he ever will because um, his movie titles, I mean, they're, you know, the, those beginning of his, most of his films, not the social network, that, but at the beginning of almost all of his films are music videos. Oh, hell yeah. Uh, I remember like seven, all, just the opening credits with like, you oh. know, the crazy, like scratched up film and that sort of thing, which at the time, like, you know, at age 19, when I first saw it, was a total revelation. Yeah, we actually studied that title sequence in school because it, that had oh, it had just come out it had just come out on DVD so they could show it in class and they were like no you need to see this this is how a title sequence is done um, so and that's he uses a alternate track of Closer by Nine Inch Nails to do that so that's very much a music video um, the titles for Girl and the Dragon Tattoo super super video like music video looking it has a, a Karen O song where she's doing Immigrant Song yeah 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 it's like uh, a much more like if possible, much more like aggressive version of Immigrant Song, which is the song, the Led Zeppelin song everybody loves and adores that was used in Thor Ragnarok. So great tune. Yeah, and then you have like the, the titles for Fight Club. Uh, the beginning of that has like the Dust Brothers song where it's like that weird like internal sort of, I don't know, internal sort of animations. And yeah, so the guy has never given it up. And I haven't been watching Mindhunter. I did watch the first episode just to kind of compare this visually. Um, and the only I have to have do I have to have one criticism for it. It's set in the 70s. There is not enough people smoking. If you've got a show set in the 70s, like half 
the characters need yeah. to be smoking cigarettes. Airplanes and... had ashtrays. Every yeah. restaurant had ashtrays. There were, there, to find a non-smoking section was rare. Impossible, yeah. So, like, Mindhunter, get more smokers. But other than that, I mean, the titles on Mindhunter is a music video. It's, it's yet again, he's showing a, a tape player and some gears of a tape player. And then, like, it flashes to, like, creepy autopsy, gross video, like, pictures. So he's making, and, it, and it's cut to the other really cool, cool, and it has... You know, this is a music video. He's made another music video. And also the titles in Mindhunter are wild looking. Like it's like the scene will start and then these massive titles will take over the entire screen. These big white block letters. I'm like, ah, that's really, really slick stuff. Um, it's it's just, a slick show. I mean, for people who like his aesthetic and his style, Mindhunter's got it in spades. If you're looking for the complete David Fincher experience, you might walk away a little unsatisfied. But as far as great TV is concerned, if you are into crime, procedurals, all that stuff, it's well worth a watch. I just think the second season, what makes it interesting is, uh, in general, season one and season two is when they sit down with serial killers in the 70s. And they're basically, it's the beginnings of behavioral science when it comes to crime. And so you're basically, they're sitting down with the most famous serial killers of all time and you have all these marvelous actors playing Charles Manson and Ted Bundy and people like that and so those interviews are what sets sets the show apart from any other like cop show or FBI show is when it starts feeling and looking like any other cop show that they lose me so I think the second season lost sight of what makes it distinctive because obviously it's a very crowded space they've been making these cop shows and FBI shows since the 50s you gotta really break some new ground if you're gonna make it interesting and I feel like season one Absolutely did season two to a lesser degree, but I'll 100% be back for season three. Yeah, I mean, I'm probably get through it. I know Asif Kapadia, the uh, documentary uh, director, actually directed several of the episodes of Mindhunter, so I was surprised by that because he's did he did Amy the documentary, uh, Senna, as well as the new Maradona uh, documentary. So then he's apparently doing fictional stuff. So I'm like, I would like to see how he takes on Fincher's style. And like changes it up for his own episodes, but yeah, overall, I mean, Mindhunter, pretty cool stuff, I, I would say. Um, not totally my cup of tea, but definitely interesting looking. And now, just as yeah. a fan of music videos, who would you say in the '80s and '90s was David Fincher's biggest rival in the world of directing music videos? I think Mark um, Mark Romanek, absolutely. Okay. I mean, he came in a little later. Like, I mean, he was more '90s, but I mean, he did. Closer, he did a perfect drive, which are two Nine Inch Nails videos, but he did a lot of really, uh, really, really difficult stuff. I mean, he, I don't think he's been as successful nearly, I mean, he hasn't been nearly as successful as a feature film maker, but he did um, that one hour photo movie where uh, Robin Williams plays kind of like, you know, kind of really intense role, which is, you know, unusual for him. So, yeah, Mark Romanek, though, I think that's the guy that is my favorite one. And also Spike Jones. Spike Jones is pretty great too. I mean, the Spike Jones so, stuff that he did with Weezer, I'm just like, those yeah. are so much fucking fun. I love that. I love those. Yeah. So those two, I guess. Those and of course, are the, like, yeah, the Beastie Boys. I mean, yeah, but yeah, Spike Jones has got some good ones. I mean, I I, I, got, I checked out that uh, that box set of his videos years ago, and I just ripped a bunch of bong hits and had the time of my life going through all those videos. It was so much goddamn fun. Very nice. Very nice. Well, Leanne, this has been an absolute joy. I mean, as I DM'd you yesterday, it's like I had so much fucking fun preparing for this. It was, it's very rare where I just get to 
experience something from my childhood that I'm not already really familiar with. Like if I'm going to do a David Cronenberg something or other, or, or John Carpenter ones, like I, I know that stuff really, really well. But with so many of these videos, it had been decades since I've been exposed to them. So it was just like, it was like a tidal wave that just knocked me flat. And I just had a huge smile on my face. So thanks again for making the pitch. This, this was a fun one. Oh, no, thank you. No, I mean, I've, I'm, you know, I'm kind of like I'm a house music, you know, closeted lady, but I, you know, I'm out of the closet as being a, a house music fan. I, I listen to KTU, you know, 103.5 KTU. Yeah, you know, um, so I'm into that sort of music. And I, you know, I, I love this style stuff. So I mean, I always listen to Madonna anyway. So I was like, well, why not like talk about her videos and also Absolutely. picture who has always just fascinated me being mainstream, but not mainstream all at the same time. So it's like, he's a, he's a tricky character, that guy. So uh, I hope, you know, yeah, like make some more movies, man, or make some more videos. Yeah, but. absolutely. Well, where can people find you online if they want to talk about Madonna or any <laughs> of these topics? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Liana Marie K. Um, and yeah, that's, that's where I am. You can chat with me on Twitter and uh, just kind of, uh, I'm going to put this out here. A new Pedro Almodovar film has just opened, Pain and Glory. It just opened uh, kind of nationwide. So go see that. I am going to go see it this weekend, hopefully. And it is so. my understanding that you and I are finally going to meet face-to-face -face at Marcus's wedding. Yes, in yes. A few oh, my time. God. I'm excited. Um, I'm, I'm a little nervous. I am going to be the officiant. So, uh, <laughs> I love uh, it. Yeah, so I'm going to be like on stage. So, But it's going to be beautiful, man. I can't wait. Yeah, it's going to be I awesome. Think, I think Scary's going to be there. I think oh, obviously Kato's going to be there. I'm trying to think who else in the wrong real community is going to be there. Probably, I, I imagine Kevin Marr, but there'll be a lot of the New Yorkers. But yeah, it, I, I'm basically, because I, I don't like weddings. I don't like going to weddings. I just, I can't stand them. However, there will be so many people there that love and adore movies. I'm just going to constantly be looking for people to shoot the shit about flicks with, and I'm sure I'll, I'll, I'll have a fine time. It's going to be beautiful, man. It's going to be Absolutely. awesome. Absolutely. Well, we hope you all enjoyed this episode. Uh, definitely take a sentimental journey through YouTube and watch these videos. You will have an absolute blast. But if you want to talk more, you can always find me on Twitter or Facebook. My personal profile is at Colbrax. And if you want some additional content, check out my YouTube channel, Geeking with James Hancock. I'm knocking at the door at 18,000 subscribers, so I'd love to get over that hump. And if you want to buy some merchandise, there's a link in the show notes below for Wrong Real t-shirts, Wrong Real coffee mugs. And coming up, we've got... Paul Murphy, we got Victor Rodriguez, we got Adam Rakoff, we got all kinds of people booked on the uh, on the horizon. So hope you'll be back for all that. But most important of all, onwards and upwards. Ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow.